Hi there, and welcome back to the Oxford Audio Tour. Here in chapter 5 we're going to be walking through another ancient quarter of the city. Starting at the entrance to Magpie Lane, we'll be meandering past several of the university's oldest colleges, wandering down the city's only remaining cobbled street, learning all about the old archaic exam school before finishing up at an ancient Jewish cemetery, a lasting footprint of a once bustling community within the city. With its uneven paving and crooked buildings, Magpie Lane is every bit as old as it looks. From the narrow, understated entrance on the high street, it's hard to believe that Magpie Lane has occupied this space for over 800 years. The lane connects the high street with Merton Street, forming a neighbourhood that houses some of the university's most ancient colleges and buildings. While the crooked Edwardian and Gregorian houses lining the street add to the mystique, the lane's innocent name hides its somewhat mistier past. The name Magpie Lane came about just after the English Civil War in the 17th century, when a brewery on the lane adopted a magpie as its logo. Prior to that point, and for at least 400 years, the lane was known by a very different name, given for its transient residents, the Ladies of the Night, who were permitted by the authorities to sell their wares only on this one street. As a traveller in the 13th century, you'd have found a small side street just like this in almost every large town or city in England, and they were meant to be easily recognisable. It was for this reason that Magpie Lane was called, and I think I'd best just spell it out, G-R-O-P-E-C-U-N-T Lane. Indeed, this street forms the earliest recorded use of the last four letters of that word. It was normal practice for medieval streets to reflect their function, and you'd often come across such vulgarity. Other such examples from this period include Cock Street, Pissing Alley, and Shitburn Lane. As you wander down Magpie Lane, you'll see an interesting range of architecture. Tudor, Edwardian, Gothic, Victorian, and finally, the pretty ugly modern building at the end of the lane on the left. It's always astonished me that in a city as historic and beautiful as Oxford, this kind of harsh modern architecture is desirable or even permitted. It's a consequence of the social development of the university. Throughout the early 20th century in particular, admissions to the university had become increasingly dependent on applicants' academic merits, as opposed to their lineage, social standing, or, of course, the amount of money they or their parents may have had. This fueled a dramatic increase in the number of students living in Oxford, and throughout the 1960s and 70s, a lot of this new accommodation was required. The early modern architectural style was in vogue at the time, believe it or not, and that's why you see a lot of it in the city, particularly within the colleges themselves, interspersed with this, you know, ubiquitous yellow limestone that defines the city's identity. At the end of Magpie Lane, you reach Merton Street. Along this street, you will find five of the most beautiful and historic colleges in the city. Oriel, Christchurch, Corpus Christi, University College, and the one that we will be discussing first, Merton. It was founded all the way back in 1264 by a powerful Englishman called Walter de Merton, perhaps best known for being Chancellor to Kings Henry III and later Edward I. As you may recall, Balliol College was founded in 1263, just a few short months before Merton. In a city as competitive as Oxford, it's hardly surprising to hear that these colleges are still debating which one really is the oldest. University College which claims to have been around since 1249, is also a party to this discussion, which 
is not very interesting. It generally relates to the technicalities of the definition of the term college. I won't bore you with the details. The dull discussion has been raging for centuries now and will likely be raging for centuries to come. Suffice to say, they are all very old and almost as old as each other. There is a long list of interesting facts and tales about Merton College. J.R.R. Tolkien was a professor of English language and literature here for 14 years and lived out the last years of his life here, following years of undesirable celebrity attention and the unfortunate death of his wife. Merton's mob quad is the oldest quadrangle at either Oxford or Cambridge, dating all the way back to 1288. Famous alumni, and the list is so long that famous alumni of Merton have their own Wikipedia page, well worth checking it out if you're walking around, but... A brief introduction will include Sir Andrew Wiles, the mathematician who solved the 350-year-old Fermat's last theorem, T.S. Eliot, the Nobel Prize-winning poet, Yang Xiangyi, the eminent Chinese literary translator who first translated many European classics into Chinese, and indeed many of China's most important works into English, Stuart Hall, the groundbreaking cultural theorist, Sandy Irvine, who, alongside George Mallory, may have been the first person to summit Mount Everest back in 1924, and whose body is still somewhere on the mountain, and Naruhito, the current emperor of Japan. One interesting tale about Merton College actually relates to Naruhito and his dissatisfaction with the quality of food that he was being served during his time there as a postgraduate student in the 1980s. He was so displeased with the quality of this food that on his graduation, he left a significant donation to the college for the kitchens to be refurbished and funded for years to come. Thanks to his generosity and for almost a decade, the students of Merton College had their dinners prepared by a once Michelin star chef. Very nice. Every college at Oxford has its own appeal and prospective applicants have to weigh up the various pros and cons before deciding which one they want to attend. Delicious food at Merton may well have been a pro, but it doesn't tell the whole story of life at Merton. It's a college that's well known for its consistently outstanding academic results. Since 2004, the Norrington Table has ranked each of the colleges based on their annual undergraduate results. The number of firsts, the number of two ones, the number of two twos, and the number of thirds. This is how degrees at Oxford and indeed um, universities in England are awarded. Um, for those of you that don't know, a first is anything over 70%, it's 2-1, higher second class degree is anything over 60%, a 2-2, a lower second class degree, anything over 50%, and a third class degree, still a pass, anything over 40%, anything below 40 is a fail. Merton College has only scored outside of the top three on one occasion, and it's cemented its reputation as one of the most academically successful colleges of the university. This is part of the reason why the popular unofficial tagline is that Merton College is where fun goes to die. Take a left and walk down the cobbled stones of Merton Lane. An enormous amount of Oxford city centre was once cobbled, but over the past century in particular, most of it has been replaced with tarmac. It's unfortunate in many ways, but perhaps if you tried cycling down Merton Street, you'd find out why it was so necessary. It is bloody uncomfortable, let me tell you. Merton Street is the last remaining cobbled street in the city, and as a consequence, it features in a great many films and TV shows, Inspector Morse being a big one. As you wander down the lane, you'll see some beautiful historic architecture, including the old postmaster's office, the 16th century real tennis club, and Logic Lane, a handy little shortcut to the high street which intersects University College. Now, as you come to the end of Merton Street, follow it left until you see a very grand, imposing stone building behind a row of black iron gates on the left-hand side. This Grade 2 listed building is the University of Oxford Examination School, where students come to sit their end-of-year exams. 
As one of the largest buildings in the university, it also hosts conferences and lectures throughout the academic year. And during the First World War, it was requisitioned by the War Office to create a third Southern General Hospital, a facility for the Royal Army Medical Corps to treat military casualties. Even in modern times, exams at Oxford are quite a spectacle. All students are required to wear traditional formal dress along with the appropriate academic gown. This dress is known as subfusking Oxford. Check out the Oxford Audio Tour website for a photograph. During exam season, it's quite a sight to see the city streets brimming with nervous young students, dressed to the nines and on their way to sit their exams. One small detail is the inclusion of a carnation rose that students wear on their left lapel. For their first exam, students will wear a white carnation rose. White is then swapped out for pink for the following exams until their final exam, when a red carnation rose is worn. If you ever see a student walking through the city with a red carnation rose in their lapel, it's always nice to wish them luck, because they are surely on their way to their final exam. How do you know they haven't just finished the exam? Well, there's an interesting tradition in Oxford known as trashing, which students engage in upon completing their exams for the year. In years gone by, this would take the form of a game in which the celebrating student would have to make it from the entrance of the exam schools all the way back to their dormitories without being caught by their friends. If they were caught, they would be trashed, attacked with champagne, whipped cream, confetti, or perhaps eggs, shaven cream, breadcrumbs, flour, whatever it was that your pals could afford. Nowadays, with the students all sitting exams around the same time in Trinity term, the hunt is usually done away with and students often meet at a pre-agreed spot to trash each other, often down New College Lane, down by the River Cherwell, somewhere like that, where they can take a quick dip to clean themselves off afterwards. If you take a very close look in the crevices of the pavement beneath your feet, or perhaps in the bushes near the examination school gates, you may well spot an old piece of confetti languishing among the leaves since the last exam season. Continue up the road now to the High Street. As you come to the junction of Merton Street and the High Street, you are standing where the east gate to the Great City Walls once stood. I put a great map together of where the city wall used to sit and the various remaining bastions and foundations and parts of the wall that are still available. It's accessible on the Oxford Audio Tour website if you'd like to see it. Head over and check it out. For now, turn right and in about 20 yards and on the right hand side, you'll see Rose Lane. We're going to be heading down there in a moment, but for now, your gaze will surely be drawn towards Magdalen Tower, part of the famous Magdalen College. Built in 1509, Magdalen Tower is a very important focal point of Oxonian tradition, thanks to the annual May Day celebrations. Every year in the early hours of May the 1st, students and townspeople gather on Magdalen Bridge, at the foot of the tower, to watch the sunrise and to welcome in the summer season. The Magdalen College Choir will sing hymns from atop the tower, and at the strike of six o'clock in the morning, the bells in the tower will start to ring. At this point, students are known to jump off the bridge and into the river below, a tradition which dates back centuries. If you do take the time to walk over to the bridge, and I must say I would recommend that you do, you'll notice that the water beneath it is really rather shallow. Another defining feature of May morning is the presence of ambulances, ready to cater for the inevitable broken ankles and wrists of these students, every single one of whom would have been drinking and partying since at least the evening before. It's worth mentioning that I think for the last four or five years now, police basically barricade the sides of the bridges off to stop students doing this. But of course, the people still manage. Magdalen College is a truly astonishing place. I will be recording a separate audio tour for each of the key colleges, including this one. Entrance is about £6 per person, unless you happen to live in Oxford or if you have a BOD card as a student or indeed if you have a friend who has a BOD card, in which case you can wander in for free. It's well worth paying to see the beautiful grounds, however, including particularly the Fellows Garden, perhaps the best kept secret in the city. For now, though, we're going to head up Rose Lane just a few feet before turning left and into the beautiful Rose Garden, close to the entrance of the university's botanical gardens. This garden sits on an ancient Jewish cemetery dating back to the 12th century. 
An ancient footpath, Dead Man's Walk, links this cemetery with the Jewish quarter around modern-day St. Aldate Street, which we'll be visiting later. It's been preserved for over 800 years in recognition of this community which contributed to the growth of the city and its university throughout the 12th and 13th century. Regrettably, life for Jews in England became very difficult in the 13th century. As they were not bound by canon law, Jews were able to loan out money for profit, a practice that was forbidden by the Catholic Church. This made them extremely unpopular with the Church, and therefore the wider Christian population. Jews were subject to all sorts of awful rumours, many of which were propagated by the powerful figures in society. King Henry III, for example, endorsed the rumour that Jews hunted for Christian children in order to murder them and use them to cook unleavened matzah for Passover. In 1218, in a terrible foreshadowing of events hundreds of years in the future, Henry proclaimed the Edict of the Badge, requiring all Jews to wear a yellow identification badge. In 1290, the Jews were expelled from England by King Edward I, and they were not permitted to return for over 350 years. Once you've enjoyed the Rose Gardens, continue up Rose Lane, up to the wrought iron gates at the end, and through them into Christchurch Meadow. Just to note, the building on the right-hand side is simply an entrance to Merton College. Once you walk through the gates, what you will see in front of you is Christchurch Meadow, a huge expanse of green open land right inside the city centre of Oxford. Christchurch, the college which owns the meadow, was founded by Cardinal Thomas Woolsey back in 1525. Woolsey wanted his college, originally named Cardinal's College, to be the grandest and most splendid in Oxford. To this end, he purchased a huge meadow to endow his new college. We'll be learning a little more about Christchurch later on. For now, just know that this meadow is the only area in England that still runs on its own time zone. Oxford time, as it's known, is five minutes slower than the rest of the country, as a consequence of Oxford being almost exactly one degree of latitude to the west of the Greenwich Meridian in London. Enter the meadow and walk straight and take a look at your phone, and you'll see that the time has indeed changed. No, I'm shitting you. That's not true. Enter the meadow and walk straight and up to the banks of the River Cherwell, where Chapter 6 will kick off with the story of a very well-known young lady who once lived here.